0: This morning, we will be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And before we get to our text this morning, kids, I want to ask you and adults alike, have you ever wanted to be someone else? Have you ever wanted to be someone else? Have you ever pretended to be someone else? Maybe when you were a kid, you... Or if you are a kid, you like to dress up. You dress up in different outfits. You dress up in different ways and pretend to be maybe a cowboy or cowgirl, or maybe a superhero, or um, or a princess. Or you pretend to be somebody other than who you are by dressing up. If you pretended. To be someone else. Maybe a superhero like Spider-Man or Iron Man, maybe Batman or Wonder Woman. That's both for you Marvel and for you DC people, right? Wanted to make sure I wasn't leaving anybody out. Maybe you pretend to be a famous sports star like Pele or Messi or Ronaldo or Maradona or Mia Hamm as we think about the World Cup. Maybe a sports star in the baseball world like Clemente or Pujols or the new superstar Aaron Judge, or maybe a football, American football <laughs> star like Lynn Swan or Barry Sanders or the recently retired Ben Roethlisberger. Think about who you pretended to be or pretend to be. Pretend, think about who you sometimes want to wish you were or want to be. They always seem to be someone great, right? Someone who's a star, someone who is maybe superhuman. Well, this morning, we see something very different. We're going to see that the Son of God, Jesus, had to become like us and became like us. He left the throne of heaven and became a man born like we are so that he could be for us what we could never be, like him. Right? Jesus, instead of, there's no one out higher than he could become or be, but instead of, like we said in Philippians, like we talked about earlier, what we recited earlier, he became like us. So let's read Galatians 4, 4 through 7 as we come to our text for today. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba. Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word made flesh in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would know what it is that your Son became like us, and why He became like us, and what it means for us. Let I want to praise You and thank You in Jesus' name, amen. So during this season of Advent, our sermon series is titled, Christ as Prophet, Priest, and King. And as we finished up our series on the life of Elijah, which was titled, The Lord is My God, we saw the importance of the prophetic word in our lives. We saw the importance of having priests who were serving the people by serving the one true God. And we saw the importance of having a king who ruled by following Yahweh. And we saw the importance of that by seeing, in many of the cases, The bad part, the bad side of of that, of those who, who didn't do those things. And in the Old Testament, there were three main offices of service that God established for the benefit of his people prophets preached, priests served through sacrifice, and kings ruled. God's prophets instructed the people in doctrine. God's priests carried out the work of sacrifice and atonement. And God's kings provided peace through righteous rule and military power. And each role had its own distinctive purpose and function. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, we saw that many prophets preached falsely, the priests became corrupt, and most kings ruled for their own pleasure. The good prophets were often rejected. The good priests often served in faithful obscurity. And the best kings fell short of the ideals of the godly kings that God called his kings to be. And throughout the Old Testament, the question that the prophets keep bringing up over and over again, who would be the one true prophet that would preach, that would teach mankind? Who would be the priest providing atonement for sin? Who would be the one true king ruling humanity for good? God sent Jesus to fulfill our need. God the Son, Jesus, came to hold the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And in this series, we'll see that Jesus speaks the word of God faithfully and truthfully to us serves us purely and rightly, giving his life for us, and rules his kingdom in justice and righteousness forever. In this Advent, we look at the prophetic office of Christ, which includes his teaching and miracles, the priestly office of Christ, which consists of the satisfaction made for the sins of the world by his death on the cross and his continued intercession for us before the throne of the Father, In the kingly office of Christ, where he founded his kingdom that will never end, that he defends his church against all enemies and rules as all things in heaven and on earth. And my hope is that this series not only prepares us for the celebration of Christmas, but prepares us for what Jesus has promised that he will do, is to come again in power and glory to renew all things. But before we begin to see Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, we must first understand that he became like us. He had to become like us to fulfill the three offices as one like us, yet without sin. And that's what we get from our text today. We get this understanding that we need a Savior like us. We need a Savior like us who we will see later in our series is prophet, priest, and king. And the main point of our text today is that Jesus became like us to make us like him. Jesus became like us to make us like him. First, he became like us, verse 4. But for him to become like us, first means that he had to be someone unlike us, right? Right? And Paul says this in the phrase, God sent his son. God sent forth his son. We see in this phrase, the implicit understanding of these words is that there are two ideas. Both are fundamental to a complete Christological affirmation of who Jesus is. It's the divine intentionality and eternal deity. These two things are bound in the phrase, God sent his son. The coming of Jesus into human history was not an accident. It wasn't something that God, the Father was like, ooh, maybe we should do this. No, it was not an accident. Not only was it to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, but it was the climax of the plan that God had instituted from the very beginning before the creation of the world. In fact, that plan was already in place when Adam and Eve sinned, right? And we get a glimpse of that in our reading this morning in Genesis chapter three, where God speaks to the serpent, and God proclaims a curse upon him that the seed of the woman would crush, would come and that it would crush his head. From the very beginning, God had the plan in place to send forth his son. Born of a woman. God sent his son Jesus Christ is God's eternal son prior to his being sent into the world. Jesus not, didn't begin to be God's son in Bethlehem, right? There's some who would say, well, Jesus be, became God's son when he was born, or Jesus became God's son at his baptism in the Jordan River, or Jesus became God's son at the resurrection when God the Father raised him from the dead. No, he is the eternal son of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the eternal one. God sent forth his Son. God sent his Son not just from Galilee to Jerusalem or just from the manger to the cross, but all the way from heaven to earth. And the full implications of this text can hardly be grasped in sending Jesus God did not send a substitute. He didn't call a back a reliever from the bullpen. He didn't call a backup off of the bench. God himself has come. Jesus the son. And now that Paul has affirmed The true identity of Jesus as the eternal son of God, he explains how he has become like us. His humanity and representative role as one born of a woman. Born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus experienced all of the finiteness and fears, trials, and temptations that are the common experience of every human being. And as Hebrews 4.15 states, that Jesus was put to the test in every way that we are, yet without sin. Jesus fully God, fully man participated in the human condition. And while Jesus' conception was supernatural, His birth was perfectly normal, complete with a dingy manger, soiled swaddling clothes, and other conditions with the birth of a poor peasant in ancient Palestine. The eternal divine Son of God was really and truly born of a woman, born like you and I, And like us, he was born under the law. Not only was he a man, but he also was a Jewish man, circumcised on the eighth day as all Jewish males were. He grew up in a Jewish home, reading the Torah, praying to his heavenly father, attending synagogue, faithfully fulfilling as no one before or ever since has done all the precepts and demands of the law. And as John Stott states, he succeeded where all others before and since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law so that the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualify him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. Paul has brought into focus here both the person and work of Jesus. Christology, who Christ is, and soteriology, redemption, and all the aspects of redemption can never be separated. The son of God became a human being It was put under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might become God's sons. Jesus became like us to make us like him. We've looked at what it means that he became like us. Let's look at what it means that we became like him, verses 5 through 7. The purpose and goal of Christ's incarnation and what we often refer to his humiliation, becoming a human being. Living the life that he lived and dying the death that he died, is his humiliation. As one commentator expressed it, Christ not only became man bound to obedience, but he became curse for us. He made our doom his own. He took on him not only the calling of a man, but our responsibility as sinful men. It is in this that his work as our redeemer lies. For it, is not, for it is in this that the measure, or rather the immensity of his love is seen. It is in this work that our redeemer lies. For it is in this that the measure, or rather the immensity of his love is is seen. Notice that God's purpose in our text was both to redeem and to adopt. Not just to rescue us from the sin of slavery, but to make us as slaves to sin into sons of God. You know, redemption, this idea that we are Redeemed, we are bought back is often discussed as what we are redeemed or saved from. And there are absolutely aspects of of sin and death that we are saved from. We are redeemed from the curse of the law. We are redeemed from the slavery of sin. We are redeemed from the clutches of the evil one. But Paul wants us to remember that it's not just the negative, so to speak, aspects of the things that we are saved from, but we are saved to something, to someone, right? We are saved as a positive purpose for Christ's, there's a positive purpose for Christ's sacrificial suffering and death. The son of God was born of woman and put under the law in order to redeem us from the law, so that we might receive what? The full rights of sons. Right, it's not just that we were saved from something or out of something, but that we were saved to God's family. We are adopted into his family. We are received with open arms. We are welcomed into his family. In Ephesians 1.5, adoption is rooted in God's sovereign election, that he has chosen us Right? It's not that we just showed up, he's like, all right, we'll come. He chose us as his son and daughter, in accordance with his pleasure and will. In Romans 8:23, we read that adoption encompasses our future resurrection, the redemption of our bodies for which we eagerly await. Our adoption says that we will be like Jesus, our older brother. Given. Renewed bodies in the resurrection. And here in Galatians 4, 5, and also in Romans eight fifteen, adoption refers to our present status our present status of sonship given to all believers who through the new birth have become heirs with Christ of the promise given to Abraham. That his offspring will be like the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, uncountable. We are a part of that promise through Jesus Christ. Now you might be saying, all this talk of sons... What does it mean that we are sons? What does it, I'm I'm a, maybe you're, I'm a woman, I'm a girl. What does it mean that I'm a son? Well, Paul explains this earlier in chapter three in verse 26, he begins, for in Christ Jesus, you are all, not just the males in the room, you all are sons of God through Faith. For as many of you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are sons, all of you, because there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no ethnic or racial component to whether you are a son of God, right? There is no component of whether you are a slave or free, whether you have all the freedom that you want or that you are bound in some form or fashion. It doesn't matter if you are male or female, you are all one in Christ and you are all sons of God. I've shared this before, I believe.